following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Well, it's great to be back. Uh, last week I was gone because I have a obligation a couple times a year to serve on a board of directors for a mission agency that's serving the Lord in the, the wonderful country of, of Cambodia, and that's all we do. And of course, the, the main reason why I serve on that board of directors is because of the high pay I get. <clears throat> it's just uh, all this extra income, and, uh, and because I don't have enough to do uh, with my regular time, but it was a fabulous time. I got to bring the word to the fellow directors as we contemplated our vision and our mission. We, we wanted to see God do evangelistically and education-wise in uh, that great city. And next week I'm going to be traveling again, and when a lot of these travel obligations come in, I always have to consider how in the world that's going to fit in with my regular obligations. So you, you guys, you're, you're very high on the priority. So when this invitation came for, for next week, I just said, so when, I, when do I need to be there and when can I get back? So I fly up Tuesday night, and I, I speak on Wednesday, and then I'm, I'm making sure that I'm back here Wednesday night so I can get up in the morning to teach Warrior's Heart. And uh, then another invitation came in, and I said, so when is it? And they said, well, this is when it is. And I said, well, I don't, I don't want to crowd out Warrior's Heart. So they said, no problem, we'll make it work. So then as soon as I'm done teaching Warrior's Heart next week, I go, go to the airport after this, and I get on a plane to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, to do some ministry for a men's ministry that's doing a great piece of work uh, on a na- national level. So I'm really excited to be with them. So that's that's kind of how my schedule works. I'm, and that's all extra stuff on top of my regular job. And that regular job is something I just absolutely love. But for some reason, knitting all this together is a real passion for the city of Houston. And uh, Warriors Hard here actually started, as as you probably remember the story, when, when God brought together uh, three good guys, and uh, they, they allowed me to hang out with them, and the four of us just kept on praying for each other and for our city, and uh, our four grew into eight, and then uh, that eight then grew into Warrior's Heart. And so we have, as, as one of our guests here today, uh, Rodney Hinkle. Rodney, why don't you wave your hand? Rodney was one of the four. He, uh, he and, He's a... Uh, very, very, uh, very good uh, guy at what he does in, in the world system, but also he's an amazing supporter at his local church. And uh, he's one of the reasons why Warrior's Heart exists, uh, because of his faith and commitment to what, what God can do in the life of a man and the life of men together, despite which churches we all represent. And uh, that's, a, that's a strength that we have, not, not something that's weird or doesn't dilute us, but actually strengthens us. So it's amazing to me when you think about Warrior's Heart, something like this can grow out of something very small, so the life of every one of you can be, again, a multiplier wherever God puts you, in your work and in your home, whatever church you're representing, whatever group of people you get connected with. The vast majority of us as guys will we'll never even know those people's names, let alone get a chance to interact with them. So if we can watch what God will do through Warrior's Heart and just allow His love to explode and His mercy to explode all over the city, we would love to see the city of Houston uh, make sure that uh, Jesus Christ is is known here. Uh, last week uh, I was over in Chicago, 
and the, the, the Moody Church, where D.L. Moody started <clears throat> that ministry, they're celebrating 150 years. So, I mean, that is, when you think about what Jesus Christ has done in the United States, the Moody Church is very historically wrapped up into all of that. And uh, I, was, I was doing my best to be really friendly to everybody up there, but I did have to let them know that Houston is the fourth largest city in the United States. And everyone, oh, that's interesting. I said, right behind Chicago. And I said, in case you guys want to take a breath, you know, we want to pass you up. <laughs> Not just in population, but in what Jesus Christ is doing in a city here in the United States, a country that we all love. And so I took it from an interesting point to a point of funny challenge to a point of real spiritual desire on our part. I said, you pray for, for us. Pray that we'll, we'll pass you guys up. We already passed up New York as the most diverse city in the United States. We did that last year in 2013. We don't do that as a, a statement of simple pride, but we who are followers of Jesus Christ, we say that because now we have the responsibility that since God brought the mission field to our city, we are not going to be worrying about going off all over the world, spending tons of money when we can actually be a huge witness to people here who will then take it to their families that they love all around the world. So that's some of the great passion that we can see how from a standpoint of just census and statistics, we can take our lives and make a, make a big difference. But there's, of course, always things that get in the way. <clears throat> and uh, there's, there's this guy, and uh, he was flying in a hot air balloon, and he realizes that he's lost. He reduces his height and spots a man down below, and he lowers the balloon further and shouts, Excuse me, can you help me? I promised a friend that I would meet him a half an hour ago, but I don't know where I am. The man below says, Yes, you're in a hot air balloon. Hovering approximately 30 feet above this field, you're between 40 and 42 degrees north latitude, between 58 and 60 degrees west longitude. You must be an engineer, the balloonist said. I am, replies the man. How did you know? Well, says the balloonist, everything you have told me is technically correct. But I have no idea what to make of your information. And the fact is, I am still lost. The man below says, you must be a manager. <laughs> I am, replies the balloonist. How did you know? Well, says the man below, you don't know where you are or where you are going. You have made a promise which you have no idea how to keep. And you expect me to solve your problem. The fact is, you are exactly in the same position you were before we met, and now somehow it's my fault. <laughs> I, I would guess that there are a number of you guys who are here who could identify with one of those two guys, either in the balloon or on the ground. And if you're not, you're probably thinking, God, I'm not one, either one of those, so that's what a great privilege. But there's so much in our life as men, isn't there, when there's always somebody trying to find fault. And if we realize how this translates into the world of what's spiritual, we are the kind of guys who are thinking, man, you know, I'm so afraid of someone trying to find fault and making me the person who's the guilty one that I'm just not going to do a whole lot. So much of what we don't do is because of the fear of other people blaming us. Now, if we as men can pick up on that particular dynamic, that this business of finding fault is a great deterrent for our spiritual vitality, man, oh man, there's a whole lot we could do if we can just get over that business of fear 
of someone finding fault in us. It goes back to that amazing biblical dynamic. Where faith is, fear is chased away. Because fear and faith are at the opposite ends of the continuum. If we live by faith, we overcome fear. If fear is what directs our lives, faith has no room to make a difference in how we live our lives. Now, one of the great realities of this whole spiritual concept, then, is, is the fact of what we think about God, that God is always just, and there's no way that God could ever be found at fault for doing anything wrong, and yet at the same time, we cower whenever we turn on the news, whether it's the television, the radio, or the internet, and we hear well-known news reporters interviewing a so-called religious leader and accusing that person that if this God that you believe in, if he's at fault because this plane went down or this tower crashed or this battle was lost or this terrorist was successful and killed scores of people, we feel a sense where our faith starts to shrink. Yet if we were suddenly thrust into a public scene and someone put a camera on our face and shoved a microphone in front of our mouth and accused us that the God that we believe in is at fault for these awful things that are happening in the world, we start to cower. And instead of being bold and forthright and the kinds of individuals who will speak up, we find a comfort in not doing anything or saying anything because this whole concept of finding fault has a huge pressure and dynamic on our lives in little steps. So when a big issue comes up, we don't say anything and we don't do anything. Well, our lesson today is the reality that if we can make sure that we can always stand with God and we'll never let God be the brunt of anybody else who's a non-believer who's going to blame Him for the events of life, but instead courageously defend Him so that, that when I live a life of obedience, I will not be fearful but I will continue in obedience doing what Almighty God wants me to do. There's a strong sense where our corruption has begun, not so much in who we believe God is or who we don't believe in the world, but really this whole concept of what God is by character, His justice, has somehow been eroded. And yet in our spirit, there's this great sense where we really demand justice be done, which simply means that what is right and what is proper, someone has given their just due. The challenge is who decides what a person deserves and they then, who, how do they uh, accomplish that meeting out of what is rightfully, uh, justly done? This uh, was stirred in my spirit this week, and you, you might know this picture and you might not, but th- this, was, this is about as current event as you possibly can have. On April 4th, last Friday this year, in Santa Monica, uh, California, at a high school, uh, this this wrestling coach and science teacher, Mark Black, was in his classroom, and one of the students in his classroom was selling drugs. And so the this uh, this Mark Black went up to the student and says, "Don't do that here in this classroom." And in fact, I'm going to call security and have them confiscate your drugs. And the student got really belligerent, and they argued. And he says, "Look, at I'm not going to yell at you. I'm not going to scream at you." I'm not going to call you names, but I am going to call security and they're going to take away your drugs. And the student got up and he shoved the teacher. Now the, the witnesses still can't decide if they, the student shoved the teacher or hit the teacher. But he wasn't just a science teacher, he was also the wrestling coach. Maybe the guy who was selling drugs, maybe his entrepreneurial spirit forgot that little detail. 
But he only got to shove the coach one time. And the coach did a single leg takedown and pinned the kid on the floor. Of course, all the chairs and desks were flying all over the place. And one of the students started to take a video with his camera. But he didn't get the first part of the altercation. He just got the video of this coach wrestling with his kid, pinning the kid down to the ground. That's all that student got on the video. Now, of course, the video went viral. And when the video went viral, one of the most amazing things is uh, the, the superintendent of schools, Sandra Lyon, the ultimate boss of Coach Black, saw the viral video and she said to, to everyone who was around her, this is utterly alarming. So she reacted and responded as a good leader she is and she suspended the teacher. <laughs> so she suspended the teacher and if you think that, that that video went viral because of the fascinating deal of a teacher wrestling with a student you should have seen the statistics after the teacher was suspended then there was this a massive outcry and this huge petition done in a single day with 4,000 signatures demanding that this coach be reinstated and there's 4,000 signatures that's more than the students at the high school and, uh, and probably half the teacher, uh, the people who signed it were, were people like me who believe in teachers and are fed up. It says, what, what are you doing tying our hands? You can't even defend ourselves if a student attacks us. And this superintendent sides with the student and the parents and says, we're going to give the student all the support that's necessary along with his family after this altercation. Now, there's a strong sense, I don't know if your spirit is bubbling over, but my spirit bubbled over right away when I heard the story, and, and I, I just demanded justice. I wanted something where this particular episode could be corrected. Now, amazingly enough, uh, before my spirit bubbled up over even more, uh, finally, the, somebody told the superintendent, I think you better look at the entire situation and collect all the facts. And once she did, she realized that she overreacted negatively. She apologized publicly, reinstated the teacher, and now the investigation is going on as it's supposed to with regard to a student who now was guilty with regard to using drugs in the public classroom. I don't know how, how you feel about that, but it, it is, it is a, an incredible world where those who are, who are in the right, who react properly, they get blamed and they are found at fault before the facts are ever displayed correctly. So I, I know this is being recorded, so I'm trying to figure out whether or not I, how I should present this, but I, I, I have been in, involved with a situation where someone is trying to find fault with me, and uh, it's, it's all, all because of people who are professionally involved with such issues of liability and accusing me of things that, man, oh man, that, that not only never happened, that never would happen. And, and I'm sitting here thinking as I read through all this information, and I'm supposed to give documentation, how in the world, how in the world can people who are trying to do something for Lord God Almighty just try to do something that's right? When people are coming up and making up stuff that never happened and, and don't exist, and trying to interpret a person's intent. No, so as I, as I was praying about all that and thinking about our lesson today, I'm thinking to myself, God, no wonder all of us as men, we have a hard time making a difference in this world. The world is incredibly hostile to all of us who are trying to do what is right and righteous. 
And honestly, there, there, there comes a time when you're overwhelmed with criticism, someone trying to find fault, and you're thinking to yourself, man, what's the point? Uh, why, why, why not? I mean, I'll just grab my fishing pole, I'll grab my, my rifle, I'll just spend time doing what I like to do and hang it on this whole business of trying to make a difference in this world. There is that human attitude where we would love to experience just re- refreshment. Just get me away from all this junk. And yet God says, no, no, I'm the one who sets an example for you. And people are going to, in this world, find fault against righteousness. If they try to find fault with God, how on earth could we ever think that if we try to represent him with all of our failings and our our efforts that are just less than fantastic, how could we expect to get away with any less? Finding fault is a huge stirring dynamic that keeps a lot of us men from standing up under the pressure of doing what God wants us to do. Well, we come to this passage of Scripture in Joshua chapter 10, and I know this is a huge chunk. We're going to go from 16 all the way to 42, but a lot of it's repetitious. It's really exciting when you start to read it little by little, and that's one of the things maybe you could do. But the theme keeps on coming up over and over and over again. This idea that God is now going to mete out justice according to what is right and correct. And he is going to make a decision based upon what he knows about the people that he says they must now be removed. And so he gives Joshua the opportunity to be God's expression of removal because these become, as individuals who live in Palestine, They are enemies of God, not because God just wants the territory, not just because he wants to fulfill a promise that he gave to Abraham and to David. But instead, this is what God has determined. He's the one who created the earth. He's the one who determines who gets the privilege to live where and do what. And we can all enjoy his great blessing if we live a life of righteousness and obedience. But once sin gets involved, then everything gets messed up. Once we try to push God out of our routine, all of life gets fouled up. So we see here in verses 16 through 19 this amazing sensation where God's divine approval to do something that humanly is perceived as this is totally vicious. We have to see it from the standpoint not of the immediate reaction, but take in all the facts. This is not just the total destruction of an entire group of people, but of people who've had many, many opportunities to respond properly to God. And it teaches us that when God says, time's up, For us to deal with our sin and deal with our faith relationship with him, God says, I'll be merciful, I'll be gracious, I'll give you plenty of time, but there will come a day of reckoning. And it's not a matter of blaming God for doing something wrong, only if our concept of justice is all messed up. Guilt is a part of the fight, of of the flight that we have here in relationship to the nation of Israel under Joshua chasing the five kings of the southern part of Palestine, who've come up to war against the nation of Israel because they don't want to submit to the God of Israel. It is a spiritual matter. And it's not just a reaction to a single battle. It's how they've been living their lives for generations. So God is now using Joshua to be his expression of righteousness and justice against sin. It protects an opportunity for later when Joshua realizes that the kings, the leaders, have left their armies to their own deserts and they've hidden themselves in a cave. And rather than just stop the battle and go and take take care of these kings, Joshua tells his men, 
put up some barricades, roll some stones in front of that cave so these kings who have hidden in there can't escape. But don't let up on your pursuit of the armies that try to attack those who are under the protection of the name of Almighty God. These kings came against the Gibeonites who are under treaty based upon the name of Almighty God. And when God's people are under his protection because his name is over them, those who attack them, that effort will never be lost according to God's memory. So God sends his nation to judge those who've tried to attack those who are under the protection of Almighty God. Now, gentlemen, if you are here and you're a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God is given as a down payment in your spirit, God is protecting you as one of His. And so do you realize that when you live a life of obedience, because God has called you to be one of His, that if you suffer under any kind of derision, any kind of opposition, God takes that personally against His name. And he will not be slack on protecting his reputation. Now you can take that to the bank. You can also take that to the realization of, well, that means I can do anything I want. No, no, it's not that. It's when God gives us a primary responsibility that when we run against opposition in this world, God takes that offense personally. And he will not forget. Well, what happens if they abuse me personally? What happens if they beat me up? What happens if I, I die? Well, that, that's taking it to the logical conclusion that we who are Christians should come up with a response in our spirit that, yeah, what's the worst thing that can happen? Well, I could die early and go to heaven. Man, that's an awful su- suggestion. What? Man, you mean I, I could go home early to be with God forever? That is an amazing option if we put it in the context of what God wants us to do from an eternal perspective. So this is motivation to keep on going, and Joshua, representing Almighty God through this whole process, he's telling his man, keep on going and don't stop. Now that whole context of understanding that God is protecting his name, we have to think about this whole sense of justice being served. So Joshua destroys all of these enemies, and he doesn't leave any survivors. Now, some people will read the Bible and say, see, this is how mean God is. He takes people and he wipes them out. Well, yeah, there's a reason for it. This is not so much how God is as he treats people. This is how God reacts as a just God against sin, against unrighteousness. Not at the moment, but for an entire lifetime. In fact, many generations, God has been patient, waiting for people to respond to him. But when they don't, Someday God will pull the trigger on his judgment against sin. Now there's still mercy through this whole process when it comes down to God's justice. And we can see that there are some individuals who actually survive. Even though generally it says all these people were wiped out. None, no survivors were left. Well, the Bible also says in that general sweep, there are a few who made it back to their cities. That's a picture of God's mercy that was undeserved. And people who want to criticize the God that we believe in, and we say, yeah, we believe the Bible. And they say, well, you even believe the stuff that happened in the book of Joshua? All those people who were wiped out? So yeah, of course. It's not because God hates people. It's because people hated God. And even some of those God allowed to live, and that's God's mercy and His justice. That's why He's allowed you here to stay and interview me. 
That's one of those kinds of things that you can bring up. It's a, it's a great way to turn it around. Because the truth is, they turned around the truth. They don't understand what these stories are all about. It's an expression of the justice of God. And we can never find fault in God because he's just, holy, and true. Now, there's a strong sense, too, where some people will say, well, is God really too tough on this whole business? Well, it really comes down to everything uh, is this business of life and death. And when it comes down to believing God, it's not because God just heals people because they choose not to become a Christian. It's because their sin that exists in their life is an offense to God, and God wants to solve that problem in their life. God is about victory, and we who are men who follow God need to put our faith and belief in that. It is a word of tremendous encouragement when Joshua says to his warriors who come back from this battle and they bring out these kings, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. So gentlemen, it's not for us to go and look at the co-workers today at the office or to look at the relatives we might have and say, well, I wonder which ones of these are the enemies of God so I can smile and anticipate that God's going to wipe them out. That's, that's not the point. The whole point is to realize that we, who are obedient servants of Almighty God, God will protect us as we serve with faithful obedience in his life. And yet God gives this respectful end just as Joshua does. And we men are kind of different when we get into that animalistic spirit. Boy, we, we want to make a punctuation. We want to make sure that someone knows that we have won. But that's sort of like running up the score at the very end. It doesn't speak about the character of the person who's winning. And God allows Joshua to have mercy on the lives of these individuals and gives them a respectful burial, even though these kings are overwhelmed. So there's a sense where when he tells these warriors of his, come over here, put your foot on the neck of this king. To have one of his officers or one of his warriors to do that. He's giving them the privilege to understand that God's justice is now going to be carried out, and we have the privilege of being a part of a team that will always win, not because we've defeated somebody else, because we've seen justice prevail, and now we are a part of it. Now there's a verse here in this passage of Scripture that sort of stands out and sort of added added value to this battle, and it's when Joshua just says here in verse 28, the Scripture says, And he, that is Joshua, did to the king of Machadah as he had done to the king of Jericho. No details, no, no amazing battle, but it's another king with another army, with another resistance that's just given this verse. But just as all these things have happened, God is going to give Joshua this amazing victory. So God has this severe command that he gives to Joshua. And he tells them that all these things are supposed to be happening, and these kings in their lands, Joshua conquered in one campaign, because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for this nation Israel. Incredible sense of divine justice. Now I suppose that when we look at a passage of scripture like this, again, uh, the sense is, boy, this seems like a bloody battle, and it's very true. But we don't want to stop there with a humanistic understanding of our feelings, but a recognition that this is truth about a God that we believe in. He's never at fault because this is an expression of his justice and righteousness. And the morality of God is never, ever compromised. Instead, that ethical value that God demonstrates with regard to his love, his mercy, and grace, that is at the heart and soul of who he is. In fact, that that has to be the reason why all of this justice is then meted out. 
So I don't know if you're a, a reader of history, but I've I've been a I toy in that that world, and so the the book The Art of War by Sun Tzu, that that has been fascinating to read something so ancient translated into modern English language, and to see how someone understood what warfare was all about, and to watch it as you take this template of these principles on how to be victorious in war, then apply it to all these wars in history. And of course, one of the great wars that affected so many of us in this room, either because some of you are veterans or people like me were were praying that we would get a very high number in the lottery, in the draft lottery. I think I ended up with, uh, my number was something like 343, and boy was I relieved. And uh, so I didn't have to go to war in Vietnam, but that was about the time in 1968. I, I graduated from high school in 69. But in 68 was on, on January 31st, for, for some of you who remember that particular day, that was, that was an awful time. The United States was feeling like, because of the overwhelming sense of military might, that we were winning the war in Vietnam. And that the enemy was now exhausted and wanted no more to do with the powerful United States. In fact, when they, they notified the United States High Command that they wanted to call for a ceasefire on January 31st, 1968 for the Tet Lunar New Year, all the Americans said, sure. And it was a lull to think that the Viet Cong were now exhausted and that they didn't, want, they didn't have any fight left in them anymore. But it was, a, it was an art of deception, according to the art of war, one of the great dispositions to win a battle. And for a couple of months, they had been building tunnels all over South Vietnam, and they had in their plan to attack 80 to 100 different sites simultaneously on the 31st. So when the South Vietnamese Army and when the United States military were taking a break anticipating this honoring of a ceasefire, on that morning in over over 80 places, if, if not 100, the Viet Cong attacked the United States bases and strategic South Vietnamese military locations. And everybody on the U.S. side and the Vietnamese side, they were all shocked. But you have 80,000 Viet Cong attacking simultaneously on the same day in about 80 to 100 different sites, and it was almost overwhelming. But while they were finding themselves in a very strong position of, of overwhelming the enemy and maybe on the verge of victory, they forgot one very important feature that they were depending on. And that was the moral component of the army that launches an attack. And in the, the, the city of Chi, the Viet Cong gathered together anybody that they thought were U.S. sympathizers. And they executed them publicly. 5,000 people executed publicly including about two to 300 nuns executed simply because they were identified as sympathizers with the United States. All the people in that city who were the Vietnamese saw that and they thought to themselves, man, that doesn't represent who I am or anything that I want to be a part of. And there was a moral violation of a natural human code to see vicious human beings do something to cast blame, find fault on people, and to unjustly take their lives. 
That one component caused the Viet Cong during the Tet Offensive to lose their momentum because they were counting on the regulars and all of the, the natural population to rise up and say, this is what we want, Vietnam free from outsiders. But when they saw the viciousness and the cruelty of that overwhelming massacre, the Viet Cong lost all moral confidence in the public. So there were no reinforcements of the people who would rise up and join them. There were no resources offered to them from any of the regulars who saw what had happened. And when they had no reinforcements, no resources, communication among all those 80 different attack points was totally lost. The United States came back with a counterattack and overwhelmed the enemy during that Tet Offensive. Now that is what I best understand is that particular moment, but it speaks very pointedly to the issue of morality. That when people try to find fault in somebody else, but immorally try to defend and position themselves to, to enhance the argument for what they are trying to stand for, and it is an immoral choice, it is not of God. We could take that same lesson in whatever situation you gentlemen might be in. If you are here today and you're anticipating going to work, and it's going to be in an environment where people find fault in you, and yet courageously you know God has given you this job and God wants you to act with ethics, God wants to act with, with values, God wants, to act, wants you to act as a man of faith, we should never cower down from fear of those who live by finding fault that that will then quench our expression of faith as we live courageously for Jesus Christ. Gentlemen, don't ever hesitate to live by faith because you are surrounded by people who are hunting somehow, some way to find fault in somebody else and take off the pressure of their own lack of performance or inability to make achievements on their own. Be a courageous man of faith Live in obedience to Almighty God and never, ever let anybody who attacks God and blames Him, finds fault in Him for anything that might be disastrous or horrific. Always defend the God you believe in and let the faith that you have to live a life of obedience for Him be your marching orders. Have a great time in your table talk. The questions there are on your green sheet. And uh, bless you as you discuss this with your colleagues. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.